working in Japan and, and being successful here is all about the long game. There's no short, quick dash around the block. You've really got to be here um, and invest in relationships. And it will take a long time to do that until you can actually build up enough uh, rapport with somebody to have a business relationship with. You're listening to Be That Lawyer, life-changing strategies and resources for growing a successful law practice. Each episode, your host, author, and lawyer coach, Steve Fretzen, will take a deeper dive, helping you grow your law practice in less time with greater results. Now, here's your host, Steve Fretzen. Well, konnichiwa, everyone. How's it going this morning, today, tonight, whatever time you are? Uh, this is Steve Fretzen. How's it going? Hope, hopefully you're having a wonderful time and a wonderful day, week and all that jazz. Um, you know, listen, if you're listening to this show, then you are someone who cares about growing your book of business. You're someone who's interested in um, checking out what the latest and greatest things are to do to build your law practice. And the reason that I started this morning with a little bit of Japanese is because I have a special guest today. It's Catherine O'Connell. She's the principal and founder of O'Connell Law. And she's also the first female solo in Tokyo. How's it going, Catherine? Hey, Steve. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Now, wait a second. That isn't an American accent. What accent could that be? Well, very perceptive of you. I am a <laughs> New. Ze- I'm a New Zealander, right? Oh. We often call ourselves Kiwis, as you know, but uh, New Zealand's where I'm from. Wonderful, wonderful. What what a what a beautiful place. And uh, so so. Why would you go from 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 that land of beautiful of, of beautiful people and land to to Tokyo where it's horrible and terrible? No, I'm just kidding. To, <laughs> to Tokyo, what what? How, how did you make that move? Well, I uh, picked up a an assignment in Japan uh, as in house legal counsel for Olympus Corporation, uh, but that was nearly twenty years ago. So prior to that, I had studied Japanese back in New Zealand, and I had a first career in tourism. So with the Japanese language, and then after that, going back to law school and doing law, that combination enabled me to sort of come over to Japan and and do this one-year contract. As I say, it's expanded into 20 now with various other roles that I've done. So that's kind of how I got here. Got it. I got it. And, and what's your background? I mean, so it sounds like some in-house background and then going out on your own as, as the first foreign female solo in Tokyo. I mean, how, how did you make that transition? Yeah. So um, after practicing in tourism uh, for several years, I went back to university, did this double degree in law. Um, I then graduated, became a barrister and solicitor in New Zealand, worked seven years in New Zealand. Uh, and then this opportunity, as I said, came up for Olympus. So I moved from private practice into in-house. And I remember my first week being told, don't be an in-house, don't be a private practice lawyer, be an in-house lawyer. So I had to sort of switch to being a more business-orientated lawyer. Um, After my one year was up here, I didn't really want to just head on back to New Zealand and do the traditional route. So I stayed and I found another role as senior in-house legal counsel for Panasonic Corporation, I moved to Osaka, where they have a, a slightly different dialect of Japanese, but that was very helpful uh, in communicating with the people at Panasonic to be able to speak that lingo. Um, and after that, I was brought back to Tokyo to work uh, for Hogan Lovell's uh, law firm, and they sent me on secondment to Mitsubishi Motors legal department. So I did that. 
Um, during that time at Mitsubishi, I also qualified for the UK bar, so England and Wales, and I had a stint in London with Hogan Lovells, came back, um, and there's a bit of a con- Chicago connection here for you, Steve. I joined a US corporate subsidiary um, in Japan called Molex, and they're based in Lyle, Illinois. There we go. Uh, I worked for them for five years. They are very famous for designing the lightning connector for the iPhone. Mm. Um, which we all rely on. And so I worked there for five years and then I actually left. And that's where I started my own practice, uh, uh, this boutique law firm that I have in 2018. So that's kind of a really short 20 years of what's happened so far for me. And what was the kind of shock of, you know, going into private practice? Because that's not something everyone can just do. Some people are built for it. Some people are not. Some people are, have, have great courage and others, you know, they're just more comfortable in a, in a, in a different dynamic. So how did you feel moving into that, into that role? You mean from uh, when I was working as corporate counsel going in to do my own firm? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think cause it, everything comes down to doing it yourself and you are your own brand. Uh, you're no longer relying on a on a corporate brand to carry you. You have to be your own brand and do your own thing. Um, and, you know, doing the bills and uh, getting those out the door, that was one of the biggest shocks for me. There you go. Oh, this is what happens, right? So yeah. that was probably the first couple of things that I was a bit shocked about. But um, what made it easier, I suppose, for me was, you know, having a great network and having built that over the 20 years. And I know that was really quite a key to my success and has been so far. So you you took this network that you had established over the, over the many years, and then you reached out to them and, and got together and did some networking, yeah. and and they yeah. you were able to get some business thrown your way. Yeah. So I left the company I was at um, at the beginning of 2017. It actually took quite a little while to get all the paperwork lined up and qualify in Japan because they need to check that you've uh, got the right credentials, the experience and all of that. And that really took about 10 months in total. So during that 10 months, while it was very frustrating waiting at the other, the other end of it was that I had a really, I really had the gift of time to be able to do something uh, and explain to people what I was doing and get the word out. And while I couldn't qualify officially as a lawyer in my own practice, I could become a business consultant. So I used this sort of persona in order to still advise and get income and build a practice and build people coming to me for business advice. Uh, And then once I got the uh, piece of paper, I could then be a lawyer. So, you know, it took um, a little bit of time, but that gift of time, as I just said, enabled me to get out get the word out into the public, uh, the people that I already knew and loved and who knew me and tell them I was doing something different. Yeah. And that's one of the things that lawyers that go solo talk to me about is, all right, so A, how do I get started? B, you know, I've got this list of people. What do I do with the list? What do I say? What do I do? What am I, you know, what am I, you know, what am I trying to accomplish here? And obviously it's, it's bringing business. However, you know, depending on the relationship, you might have to take something slower and some things more quickly. So what, how, how did you maneuver through that list of contacts and, and um, eventually, you know, when you, when you were able to, the, to practice law, get them in as clients or get them to refer you business? Yeah, I think that's a really, really good question because I'm naturally motivated by networking, but the first group of people were lawyers. I'd worked in-house, so I knew a lot of external lawyers. I'd also worked in private practice, so I knew a lot of general counsels and people working in businesses. So that was one big community 
that I could tap into and talk to. And I also used those people or utilized those people, gained their knowledge of what they were seeking in the market, right? So I provide flexible legal services, which are part-time services for people or relief when people are, are bridging between roles, companies are looking for lawyers and things like that. So I could tell from the people I was dealing with that they needed that kind of service. And the second group were entrepreneurs and small business owners. Um, and I had been working with them through um, various mastermind groups and other groups that I sort of joined. And so I had that ear as well. So those people were also um, evangelists for me in the end too. And then the third group, I suppose, Steve, would be the Chambers of Commerce. And I'm not sure how busy they are in America uh, or other places, but in Japan, they are really very big um, for the international community here. And so in particular, American Chamber of Commerce and the Australian New Zealand Chamber of Commerce were places where I had immediate audience for people um, who were there listening and, and I could approach and tell them what I was doing. So that's sort of three really distinct areas where I could go in and tell them um, what I was up to and what I planned to do and get some information from them. Yeah, that's really great. So it's a combination of of the lawyers, the entrepreneurs, and and then then the networking groups that had been established that you had, you know, could go in and build relationships or take, you know, just just, you know, be an active member. Yeah, I had been an active member and also in the leadership, you know, vice chair of one one group and then a, you know, a vice chair of a committee, a legal services committee. So I just sort of had that captured audience and it really yeah. made a difference that volunteer work, you know, it could come back to me and be very helpful. And what's the conversation? So you, you, you know, someone at the chamber, you're a leader in that group, you know, that that individual is a lawyer that might be in a position to refer you. They've got an active business. You, what do you, you sit down and have coffee, have lunch, have tea. What, what do you, what's yeah, your, what's in your, those days where we could do that. We're still in under <laughs> a situation in Japan where we can't do that at the moment. Uh, but yes, those were the, exactly the things that I did and just tell them what I'm doing and just see what their reaction was. And when they had a reaction that was, oh, that's interesting, tell me more, tell them more. Or if it was something about, really, you're going on your own, that's ris risky, isn't it? And finding out more about why they thought that. And more often than not, this uh, answer that was about risk was usually about their risk perception that they had of themselves, that they probably wouldn't do something like that themselves and sort of mirrored across the table to me. So Every single meeting had information that was very, very useful. Yeah. Everybody's got their own, what I call head trash. And that's, right. you know, their perception is it might be, you know, this is scary. And, and your perception mm. is, no, this is, op this is opportunity. This is, you know, mm. this is fun or enjoyable. Um, mm. But the risk that maybe that they were feeling or, or sharing with you might've been that there were no, fe no female foreign solos in, J in Tokyo. So you're doing something that no one else had done before. So wasn't that risky or scary for you at all? Well, it's very, very funny, but I actually didn't have that as the beginning game when I set out. It was only after I qualified that a very good friend of mine who is a legal recruiter said to me, hey, Catherine, do you know you are the first foreign female to do this? And I thought, really, am I? Why am I the only one? There's been plenty of women out there before me who have been practicing law in Japan and Tokyo for a very long time. Why me? So I didn't, it wasn't my motivator at the beginning. It was something I found out later. Um, and I think when people came to me and said it was risky, it was really, I think, coming from you're by yourself. You know, you don't have a, a big law firm or other lawyers to go and talk to. How are you going to cope? 
So again, it's from their per- perception that, what did you call it? Brain trash or head mind trash? Head, head trash. trash. Yeah. That's the one. <laughs> yeah. And I think therefore they probably wouldn't do that themselves. How on earth could I have the gumption to do that? And it didn't really cross my mind that that was a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be honest, it wasn't really something I thought was risky. If it didn't work, I could go back and be a, a law firm lawyer in a right. big practice, or I could go and do another in-house legal counsel job. It wasn't the failing that really was something that made me think I shouldn't do this. Right. So. right. And I know before we spoke today that um, you had sent me this terrific handout. I've got it up in front of me, tips for handling meetings with Japanese clients. And I know that there's, you know, people listening to the show that say, you know, I'd love to work in Japan or I'd love to work in, in a foreign country and, and get business there. And there's IP attorneys and other attorneys that currently are. And what are some of the cultural differences between doing business in the U.S. or New Zealand or in, or in, in the U.K. versus in, joke, in Japan or Tokyo? Right. Well, I'd say one of the first things is never cold call anybody here. Everything is really done through relationships and introductions. Introductions are your gold medal door opener. And I'm saying gold medal because we're recording this during a certain Olympic event happening in Tokyo right now. Yes, we are. So (laughs) the other thing is that Japanese are very, very high context. So what's said in words is really something that matters less than uh, what is said through context compared to, say, the America, which is very low context, I would say, uh, where words are literally what people take as the um, genuine, you know, meaning of what's being conveyed. The other thing would be I often hear Japanese say that's difficult. Mm, that's difficult. That difficult. That's difficult doesn't mean it's difficult. It means we can't do it. It's impossible. Wow. So you've got to know that there's no point in going back and saying, well, they said it was difficult. So let's try and think of a way we can do it. It's a difficult, difficult means it's, they're trying to let you down very gently. Wow. So then um, in the US, for example, the, the, the way that they do that is a, that sounds really interesting. I'll get back to you. Yeah. And then they never do. They then they ghost you. That's what they do in the US. Like as a yeah. way of saying, I'll think about it. And I, I think about it is a no, but we yes. don't we we think that's great. They're gonna think about it. They're gonna give thought to it. Absolutely not. That's a buyer trick that we came up with to distance ourselves from people exactly. we don't want to end up giving bad news to. Well, there we go. That's very, very interesting. So in Japan, they're letting you down gently and saying something's difficult. And then we also use it. So I use it quite often to say something is difficult if with Japanese. So I know that they know what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, and you often hear Japanese say a lot of, you know, do a lot of head nodding and say, yes, 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 as you're talking. And uh, being uh, someone who's lived here a long time, as you're talking, it's very hard for me to not say yes or not or say, hmm, or is that so as we're talking? But Japanese will do that. And if they say yes during that kind of conversation, they're not actually agreeing with you. They're just, yes, I'm listening, right? Um, And, you know, some things you shouldn't just take things at face value. I remember when uh, one of my very first occasions when I just started learning Japanese and I was on a, I remember I was on a bus and tourists were on the bus, Japanese tourists, and they sort, I heard them say, she's got a big nose. And I took offense at that, right? And so I started listening to their conversation. Um, and then when I got off the bus before them, I sort of said something enough along the lines of have a nice day and enjoy yourself. So they sort of knew that I knew enough. And I thought that they would be embarrassed by that comment. But in fact, they were just smiled and thought, oh, yeah, that's great. So and for me, it felt it was rude. But actually in Japanese or in Japan culture, noses that stick out are more desirable. 
Mm. And so, in fact, Holy they mackerel. were complimenting me. Wonderful. And I, it took me a while to find out what that really was. And for a long time, I was caught up with that. But not to take things at face value or nose value, shall we say. So, <laughs> you know, they weren't being rude and they were sort of, um, you know, I'd given them a nice greeting at the end. So they thought I understood what they were saying and it, I didn't really get the reaction I expected. So uh, that was very interesting. So I think that's probably something uh, people can think about. So fl- flip this exact conversation into business development. Are there cultural, so you mentioned like no cold calling. All right, that's fine. No one wants to do that anyway. Most lawyers you know, don't or shouldn't. Uh, but what are the, the then the, 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 the intricacies of the Japanese culture as it relates to business development, maybe different than in other, other countries? Yeah, well, I think one thing is if you are networking and more often than not, these are online these days, you really need to do what you say and say what you're going to do. So if you meet someone, maybe this is pretty basic across the across the the whole spectrum. But for Japan, it's very very important that if you say you're going to introduce them to somebody or that you will contact them on Thursday, you do that. Any slight deviation from that, what you promised you would do, will really let you down in their eyes, and so you know you will lose the trust um, immediately. So that's one of the really, really big things I would and, say. And by the way, that's that's big here too, yeah. but people don't do it. People are constantly let down. That's one of the reasons that networking is so frustrating for lawyers here in the US because they feel like they're going out and they're getting promised things. And actually, just to share, if you don't mind, I actually, in, one, in my networking handbook, uh, I give out the three types of networkers. One is the taker that just is there to sell you. One is the real giver, and that's what the Japanese would appreciate, and we all would appreciate, someone that actually follows through and does it. The middle one is the tricky one. I call it the apparent giver. This is the person that gives, that that constantly says all the right things, but when it comes time to execute and actually follow through, generally fails. So mm. they have this they have this polished you know, sort of look about them and, 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 and everybody sort of thinks they're good because they know a lot of people and they move around a lot. But at the end of the day, they're not really making quality introductions. They're either making terrible introductions mm-hmm. or they're just, they're just giving lip service and then not following through. And that would not fly in Japan. Mm. It sounds like. That's true. And, you know, working in Japan and, and being successful here is all about the long game. There's no short, quick dash around the block. You've really got to be here um, and invest in relationships. And it will take a long time to do that until you can actually build up enough uh, rapport with somebody to have a business relationship with. So those are a couple of key things, I would say. Yeah, really interesting. So another thing that we had talked about is that uh, whether you know dealing with a client or dealing with a, a prospective client that might might bring in, that negotiating is also done differently. Can you explain a little bit about that? Mm, so negotiating, for example, with uh, contracts, right? Japanese contracts, if you ever have actually have one. And um, in two cases today with two clients, they said, we haven't got a contract. We haven't had one for 20 years. But the other side have thought about it and they have been told by their head office in Europe they need to have one. So not having a contract is quite normal. Mm. If you've got one, it's usually quite short and very vague. Uh, and it'll have things in there like, using best endeavors to do something Mm. or we will try to reach an amicable arrangement or agreement if something goes wrong. So those things are are, are one of those things are, well, those things are, shall we say, quite, 
common in Japan and they don't translate into other laws. The other thing is that people hardly ever meet face to face. I remember, you know, the days of uh, first um, being qualified and we would always be meeting lawyers on the other side of the table or on, well, we didn't have Zoom at that time, but that's showing my age. So um, it was hardly ever face to face in Japan. So you will uh, usually negotiate things over email. Um, and maybe a phone call, but not often. So that's quite interesting. Um, and Japan is very centered on paper, loves paper. Mm. So processes here are very much an exchange of documents over email, for example, and physically posting an email, posting, physically posting a contract, I should say, uh, so that it is signed in person by somebody with wet ink. So there's sort of those kinds of things. Negotiating uh, is, is very hard for Japanese. They really don't like it. They'd rather you just accept something uh, or that um, you accept what they've said to you. So it's just difficult to negotiating. Got it. And and I know that, um, you know, handshaking and bowing and things, you know, obviously that's kind of gone a little bit away. Is that what's what's the what's the the protocol for that if if you're at a networking event or if things get back to in person or how do you deal with with greetings yeah so a handshake is uh acceptable but it's not very common and especially now nobody's doing it um and so the bowing aspect has actually been quite useful over COVID 19 um and that is quite a, a big cultural thing in that we are experiencing people at a distance right so you would always have a physical distance between you for that so I think people are getting back to that and even online you know people can't see you and I now but at the end of the call if you were Japanese I would bow my head to you and as we leave the call I will not leave immediately I will give three seconds mm, bye like Steve that. three seconds then I will cut out and especially you need to do that with something like teams because that zaps off straight away right with Zoom, you've got leave this meeting, and you've got another couple of seconds before you find that button. So um, in the same way that you would end a call in Japan and say goodbye, but leave three seconds before you click, you do that as well on, on meetings these days as well. So no handshake still, and I think bowing will continue and just be really careful when you end a meeting. I mean, if I'm being honest, I was hoping that bowing would take off here in the US because I I'm a bit of a germaphobe and the handshaking is out of hand. It's, it's not out yeah. of hand, it's in hand. But right. <laughs> right. And and so like I would shake someone's hand and that's fine. I'm not, you know, gonna like, you know, shrink away from it. But then I would be thinking, where, you know, how can I get to a bathroom? How can I get to a Purell? Because mm. I don't know where their hand has been, quite frankly, and now mm. it's on mine. So now that we're at Zoom, that that that's all gone away. But but now we get back, it's amazing. I went to a networking event and I was hesitant to give my hand out and people were throwing their hand in front of me right away. It's like, like COVID never happened. And I yeah. guess we're just kind of back to, back to the first base here. Yeah. Well, the elbow thing, you know, the exchanging greetings using elbows, it's yeah. just a little bit awkward. And also you probably know that business card exchanging here in Japan is very, very common. Mm. And so during COVID-19, when we had the old, the odd occasion where we weren't in a state of emergency and we could have an in-person event, people were very hesitant to actually hand over a business card. And so a lot of that has actually gone digital. And so people are exchanging QR codes or LinkedIn details. And I think that's been quite a good change uh, to move away from the business card or to have a digital business card instead. Um, that may come back, but I think people are very hesitant because of that 
that germaphobe you talk about on the cards. Yeah. Okay. And let's wrap up, Catherine, with how do attorneys in the US, Australia, UK, et cetera, they want to get into the Japanese or the Tokyo market. What's what's any advice for them to if they if they want to do do business in Japan? Uh, again, as I said before, the long game. The long so game. So don't yep. expect to come in and win and uh, do a, a two-hour or a, a two-week meeting and think you're, you're done and you're going to get that customer. You've really got to work for the customer. And it's often said that if you can make it in Japan, you can make it anywhere for your products and services. Mm. So having a long game, being uh, faithful and true um, and trying to speak a bit of Japanese is useful. You don't have to be a master of it, but being acceptable of that and also of the customs um, and doing your homework. I mean, finding out a little bit more through, as I said, those chambers of commerce, finding people online who know this stuff, who've been around for a while, someone like me who can advise and help them and help you through that process. But coming in here with just uh, the same expectation you might have for a Western country or indeed for another Asian country is probably... Uh, not very uh, useful for yourself, right? If you really want to be successful here. And maybe they can connect with you. That's very possible. That's very possible. So <laughs> if they wanted to connect with you, Catherine, how would they get yeah. in touch with you? What's what's the what's the deal? Yep. So the best way to get hold of me is uh, either through my website. Uh, you can see me also very prolifically on uh, LinkedIn. I am running a Lawyer on Air podcast. So you can see me posting about the podcast there. I think it would be very hard if you didn't search my name and it would, wouldn't come up. Um, it would be very uh, obvious for you, right, if you do search it. So please check me on the website or else on Lawyer On Air podcast uh, on LinkedIn. And I want to tell you how much I appreciate not only you being on the show, but I'm we're, ta we're taping this at 7.30 in the morning in Chicago and I believe 9.30 at night for you, correct? Yes, and usually 10 o'clock is my bedtime, so um, I'm doing pretty well. But I'm, yeah. I'm energized, and I was looking very much forward to speaking with you as I've listened to your podcast for the last year out on my daily strolls with mask on. So you've been an inspiration, and um, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, and I, I appreciate you, and I appreciate what you do, and, and, and you're sharing your wisdom with my, with my audience. It's, uh, it's, it's really been fun. Thank you very much, Steve. Sure. And hey, everybody, thank you for spending a few a few minutes with uh, Catherine and myself today. Uh, you know, look, whether you're interested in, in uh, getting into business in Japan or not, doesn't matter. It's, it's interesting to understand the cultural differences, to understand the business development differences and uh, and, 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 and see how other you know, people are, are doing business. So listen, um, you know, the goal is always to be that lawyer, someone who's confident, organized and a skilled rainmaker. Take care and be safe, everybody. Be well. Thanks for listening to Be That Lawyer, life-changing strategies and resources for growing a successful law practice. Visit Steve's website, fretson.com, for additional information and to stay up to date on the latest legal business development and marketing trends. For more information and important links about today's episode, check out today's show notes.